Hello, and welcome to the show. This is the Goodwin Podcast, and I'm Nico, your host. And today is a mildly special day. I went to the hospital for my second checkup post-cancer, I guess in the middle of being healthy. Now that I'm healthy, I go for checkups every three months. I get blood work done and I get a little physical examination, blood pressure, some light touching, and uh, I talk to the doctor. And uh, everything went well. No, no need to build any tension or suspense there. Uh, nothing was found. My lymph nodes are normal size, but the blood work takes some hours to get back, and uh, I haven't heard back on that yet. But the doctor said the checkup went perfect. So that's good. Good news. Right? Yes. Being in the hospital brought up a whole bunch of stuff. You know, it's it's been, I guess, three months since I, last time I was at the hospital. And it's in the same place that I went to get chemo, uh, the Kellogg Center in... Chicago. And so I get there, they do the COVID examination, temperature, ask a few questions. I go to the waiting room and I'm just sitting in the waiting room feeling some type of way, not really knowing how to, how to feel, but, and instead of just going to my phone and engaging with social media or checking email, sending texts, I, I I just pull out a little meditation. So I just kind of sit. I started with my eyes closed and just started to feel into my body. Nothing special, just like a body scan, like feeling my top of my head down to the tips of my toes and then back up. And... I think it's PTSD, right? PTSD can be so nuanced and I think it depends so much on the type of trauma, how the PTSD is manifested or expresses itself. It's almost such a large blanket of a term because I think the type of trauma plays such a role in in what it actually feels like person to person because it's it wasn't necessarily acute like like pain or anything and I, I i can't imagine like someone who has trauma of like military service or gunfire or um losing someone horrifically or you know the myriad of traumas being assaulted compared to this kind of subtle PTSD I have, which is like going to a place where I got chemo, right? And chemo is a, a, has been a good thing for me. It's taken me from ill to a place where I can be healthy again. So I'm, I'm like even, th- you know, it, there's, that definitely makes it more mild. That makes it a little bit more subtle. But going into the place and just like 
sitting down in that same waiting room that I would be waiting for to be called to be hooked up and and pumped with treatment, medicine, chemi- chemistry, chemicals. I just it it just a lot of sensation. And if, and I was kind of adverse to it, right? Walking into the hospital, there's a particular trigger for me. And um one of the strangest and weirdest parts was the saline solution. So I would get four treatments, four chemicals, chemos put into me. And bef- in between, and that meant that I would get my port, that I would get flushed with saline solution, like 10 milliliters of saline solution, maybe 10 times per treatment per six, eight hours treatment. And the saline solution, for those of you who don't know, when it gets pushed into your body, it produces a, a very specific taste. Some describe it as metallic, but it's almost like, it's not like ocean water. Look, I hope you don't have to know, and, and I don't have the proper words. Maybe metallic is the best way to describe it. But that taste used to be, used to trigger nausea. That taste, more so than even the chemotherapies, which didn't really have like a flavor, but they they certainly had a feeling. And I'm sure the saline alone, if they weren't paired with the chemos, wouldn't produce such a nauseating effect. But the fact that I would get flushed with the saline, I'd have that taste in my mouth, and then I'd be have a nausea-producing treatment. It's kind of like this reinforcement, this like Pavlovian reinforcement. Um, so I worked in a lab since being healthy, and part of my job was syringing up chemicals and placing them into basically like a, a spectrometer. And at first, when I was pushing the chemicals through for testing, it would like trigger this like stomachy, chesty kind of nausea, even though it was very separate from me. I wasn't And that's almost what it, the PTSD like thing. I don't, I'm, I'm hesitant to just say, even though I've said it a bunch, PTSD, I don't feel like I'm fully, I don't know. Maybe I can just accept that it is some sort of trauma response. And sitting in the waiting room, first being uncomfortable, and, and then. You know, I'm the youngest one in there for sure. There was about four people and many of the people in the getting treatment or waiting for treatment or waiting for their post-treatment examinations, like 80, 70, 80, just, it was just an older community, fortunately. And I was the youngest one again today. And so there was these two older, older men, both with walkers, um, but like sweet as apple pie. Like I'd hear them interact with like the the check-in lady and then the nurses that would draw blood. Uh, and despite like their immobility and their circumstances that led them to a cancer treatment center, just like so nice, so kind. And... I'm sitting there, like not on my phone, but in this meditation space, kind of feeling into this 
discomfort or this remembrance of a of discomfort and uh i practice i don't know if it was intentional at first or if it just kind of sprung up like a hiccup but i realized how healthy i am compared to where i was and like and in my head i just kept saying i'm i'm healthy like that was my mantra i am i'm healthy like i'm so able so thankful but it was just i'm healthy i am healthy and i was feeling it you know i was feeling myself and it felt all of a sudden it felt good to be in that space it felt good to be in the hospital in this waiting room it felt good to see elders like super old elders and to feel like the aliveness in me as a young as a young man and i said some corny shit in my head or some some corny stuff came to mind but it was like like i will carry this fire like this life as far as i can for as long as i can you know seeing older men and their and their fire their ability to hold fire carry the life force within them dwindling and seeing their lightness it's like i'm ready to continue to carry this and i feel fully able to you know to pass this carry this on for future generations and as long as i can and as long as is given to me maybe um so it felt kind of good to be in the hospital it kind of felt good to like just remember in a way in a strange weird way and to spend just that 10 20 minutes meditating on my health again specifically on my health cuz when when i get sick you know all all other thought forms and stressors went away it's like oh i only have to focus on my health and in in a way it was liberating that i only had one focus and that was my own healing so showing up for myself to meditate and to just repeat to myself i'm healthy i'm there's so much to be thankful for already and you know to work on the mental aspects of it like have i lived enough have i done enough and like learning how to quiet those doubts with gratitude or with yeah my life has been beautiful so far yeah i'm i am happy to be here yeah i do want to go further and i will fight for that i will fight in a way for life and to and to continue moving forward um and then since you know being healthy like old things have kind of crept back in where now my interpersonal relationships now that health is my only focus focal point and i'm looking to thrive or to accumulate or to you know ego things feel respected or feel heard seen etc um i lost just a little bit of that naturally but it's also good to get lost you know it's good that i have more that i don't have to just focus on being well it's a luxury that i'm now fully aware of it's a luxury to not just folk have to focus on being healthy and there's a, there's an immense gratitude in that and it even it feels good to be able to say so 
the checkup like meant something to me, like going and kind of revisiting this place of trauma and uh, sitting and feeling it. And just past that discomfort, there was this, there was sitting this gratitude, this, this, this love and this thankfulness for, um, for Western medicine too. I was talking to another friend on the way to, uh, to this doctor's visit, doctor's visit I, I felt like reaching out to some people and um you know some didn't answer some did and i was talking to to she's an elder she's just such an awesome person to be around and uh she's been she had blood cancer as well and she's since then been healed or uh has been cancer free and i wasn't thinking about calling her i wasn't planning on calling her on the way to my treat my appointment but I happened to, you know, she came to mind really strongly and then I called her. So, and we were each talking about how alternative medicine, Eastern medicine, almost the denial of Western medicine was our main like mode of living before we got sick and how contrary to our beliefs, Western medicine helped us each in uh, being healthy again for for our time. It both helped uh, eliminate the cancer and, and helped us be clear, cancer-free. And our gratitude for that, you know, and our gratitude for um, having our, our beliefs shaken in a way so that we can not deny any part, any aspect of existence, for example. You know, there was a long time where I kind of knew I was sick, but there, I was doing everything I could to try to fix it myself. All these homeopathic remedies, drinking my pee and fasting and um, meditating in a particular way. And, you know, for me, it it was a really hard decision to start chemotherapy. I wanted to heal myself in any other way. Because for a long time, I, I had the idea that, you know, it was only bad. That Western medicine was like evil, was like the empire and and home, alternative medicine was the resistance. But now my, my beliefs are more inclusive where I don't ha- I don't throw out Western medicine at all. It's it's I'm much too. uh <laughs> thankful for the second chance that it's given me and it doesn't deny eastern medicine it doesn't deny alternative medicine because i've used a lot of the meditation skills the breathing practices the you know that plant medicines ayahuasca and psilocybin i've used to help get my mind right so that i can approach these western medicines i can approach these surgeries with a certain level-headedness. I, apart, I, I think that, and there's not proof of this, but I think that ayahuasca helped me assimilate the chemotherapy and helped it be so effective for me. You know, it worked, it worked for me within a couple weeks. I was cancer-free. And again, I think that was part of the mindset uh, that 
that I was able to cultivate through ceremony. And, and certainly it helped me approach suffering in a, in a different way where I, I didn't have to be so caught up in the pain. I can kind of witness the pain and not exacerbate it for longer, particularly in, in things like surgeries and, and, and the nausea, you know. And I think fasting kind of, it kind of helped the nausea in a way with chemo. There's a, there's like a big blog that says that you should fast on the days of chemo. Um, and I did a little bit of that. And I wonder if, you know, I don't have anything too much to compare it to, which is okay. <laughs> um, but they just work so much uh more in like more woven together for me and it's a luxury to be able to throw out western medicine it means you haven't gotten ill it means you haven't needed them needed it them the abstract western medicine hospitals as we know it in the united states i mean it's it's easy to criticize medical practices when you know you're healthy and you've never been faced with an illness and you haven't tried everything that you could think of at the time and uh you know then you see what you do it's this kind of makes me think of another topic it's kind of off topic but similar same, same, but different. And, you know, there's just a certain, there's like people in the community, this like alternative community that like, they think of pets, right? And dogs. And their perspective is domestication is wrong, right? We've taken a wild animal and we've turned it into a pug that can barely breathe out of its face. You know, that's completely dependent on its human for food. Um, it's not in a pack. Like we isolate these pack animals and keep them, you know, we, we basically take their balls from them. And, uh, and um, give them kind of this, there's this Stockholm syndrome effect where uh, they become completely dependent on us and they actually learn to love us even though we've taken this wildness from them and again that's just too well one it's pessimistic as fuck but two it's just it's just too easy like how i i see it now because i i have a dog too so i've thought about this like i've taken that that seriously i'm like am i really trapping this dog like i've first off my dog was born whether or not, like, I didn't help my dog become born. Like, she was at the shelter the day that I showed up. You know, I didn't have two dogs meet and fuck to create her. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, like, overly responsible for her life. I'm not responsible for dogs being a thing right now. You know, we're not on the frontier of transitioning wolves to domesticated dogs first off. So it's a denial of what is like, what 
is right now is there are dogs and there are plenty of dogs that need homes that don't have the ability to create these packs and to be wild and go to Puerto Rico, go to, go to poor countries. I know Puerto Rico is part of the United States and it's a colony, not a country, but it's what comes to mind. The street dogs aren't living the best. They're not reflecting love and they look, oh my God, I've seen some dogs that just look like a horror movie, like growths falling off of its side and face. And it's like, and not approachable. And like, I I remember just like this hot day in Puerto Rico and I'm walking down the street away from this house I was staying at. And for some reason there was like a Tupperware on the lawn and I walk out of this, uh, out of this, like the fenced area of the house. And, and there's just like these four dogs, the mangy as fuck. And just like, like basically drinking like puddle water like dried up mud and just like not looking good. And I I see this Tupperware on the ground. I just fill it up with some water. I try to give it to them. They walk away. No problem. I put it down. I'm like, okay, on my way back, I'll get it. And it's like, that makes me feel better because I feel like I'm offering a little bit of love, like a little bit of care to this, to this. It's helping me cope with my seeing this like mangy pack and living in the wild on the streets is difficult. So that so that's one. And, and two, I think that wolves participated in their own domestication as humans participated in the domestication of wolves. It's called symbi- symbiosis. It, a, it was a symbiotic relationship. Maybe it's ventured a little bit from that because we live in such abundance right now. But... There was a time where wolves allowed themselves because of the cons- the more consistent ability to get food, to get shelter, and the relationship was built between men and humans, or dogs and humans, not just because men needed to dominate the situation and dominate nature. Like, it's taken way too long for, like, the domination over nature is is... I think of the industrial revolution. I feel like it's 300 years old where we've kind of just have gone too far in taking and polluting and where there was, there was just a natural harmony that existed earlier on because of lack of technology or the lack of the ability to exploit resources from the earth and process them. So I think this relationship between dogs and humans was like more symbiotic. It was more chosen. And I don't see domestication as wrong or it's a little weird, right? Like wolves turned into like, because of us, wolves turned into chihuahuas and wiener dogs. It's just weird. You know, it's weird. Yeah. If I would have start over, I would have maybe kept wolves a little bit. And I had to control over everything. I would have liked to keep wolves a little bit more wolfy, maybe. But it's also beautiful how all of these different looking dogs have been created from like a, a common ancestor. And over so many, so many years of like breeding and 
I mean, it's just wild. But to like, I I had a friend who who like had a cat, had a dog, had like even like a lizard, and they had like a revelation, like, oh, domestication is wrong. Like, we're keeping these animals prisoner. They should be free. And so he, they gave away like their cat, and they gave away their lizard and their and their dog. Or I think their dog passed, and it's like. Like, that's just sweeping it under the rug. Like, you already took that cat's, like, sex organs. Like, it's already alive and in your possession. It almost just seems like you don't want to take care of it anymore. <laughs> like, you feel wrong, so instead of actually, like, seeing seeing it through, like, you made a wrong decision according to how you believe, what you believe now. So see it through. Don't just give it away, offload that decision like you're doing now you're doing something better because you don't have the response you just don't you're just giving up responsibility and you're not willing to make things right you just want to you just feel like you did something wrong and you want someone else to take care of your shit like if you really feel like you did something wrong then let that cat live outdoors as much as as they want to maybe and if they do get eaten because that's also more likely like my dog can't live on her own. She's a pack animal without a pack. I can't just release her to the wild. She'll first off, she won't go. She she loves me. Or that's what her act like she loves people and she loves being around and even if I let her outside, she would just sit and wait by the door. I don't know if that's Stockholm syndrome and she doesn't know any better, but my point is is like she doesn't she wouldn't last. She doesn't know how to be wild whether I took it from her or whether, you know, dogs are just as responsible for their own path, you know, as we are. It's not possible to right that wrong that way. How I see it is I've made a decision to take care of this animal, to take him in, and she's part of my pack now. And I'm her pack. And I will be with her as long as I can and keep her safe and healthy and fed and she'll give me love and uh, bring me toys and, and snuggles. That's our symbiotic relationship because what she does, she does do something and I can be angry. I can be so angry or so upset or so frustrated. And I'll just like walk down the stairs and like, she'll just walk up to me with, and I can't say anything bad to her. She's just so fucking awesome. Everyone loves their dogs so much, especially, I guess, white people. But I'm I guilty. Guilty as charged. I love animals so much, and they improve the quality of my life so much. Like, they show me a love that, I mean, unconditional love, right? Even when my dog was a puppy and I was a, like a an impatient pack leader or whatever like i would get mad i'd spank her and and she you know which i feel bad about i wish i was a little more patient if anything and you know she's a puppy i'm 200 pound man and she's right now she's a 60 pound dog but she was even smaller when she was a puppy and it's like whatever it's what happened and um and uh for well i think dogs do respond to physicality 
I didn't have to be necessarily so aggressive or impatient, but like I could have given her physical clues for training to show her do's and don'ts during the training period, like the first couple of years. Um, and with bigger dogs, I don't have any problem like grabbing them by the scruff of their neck, wrestling with them and kind of just, you know, giving, getting physical roughhousing. I think dogs communicate really well through roughhousing. So I'm not in the, I'm not in the category that you just don't ever touch a dog or a person for that matter. I don't have kids, but you know, that kid is wrestling me and getting my best, my best grappling moves until they can beat me on their own, on their own or something like that until they, they can muster up the courage to kill me. But yeah, I do wish, you know, I was like, maybe there's like one or two times where I'm like, this is too aggressive. She's scared, you know, and I would be too, if I was a little thing and a big thing came and yelled at me because I shit on the carpet for the fourth time in a day or whatever it was probably wasn't even that pulling on the leash too much my point is is i love animals <laughs> so much and uh and uh, white people love their dogs and i think that's not just a white people thing anymore i think people love their dogs white people just get shit because i let my dog kiss me on the mouth and that's uh that's gross but it's my dog and it's a choice I make. And she, she'll sneak a kiss even if I don't give it to her. I wake up with a sliced tongue in my mouth sometimes. And it's like, you know, what's a man to do? I'm not going to get mad at her. I love her way too much. I love her so much. I, I make the joke, but it's not really a joke. But I make the joke, it's not really a joke. But I'll make the joke that's not really a joke that my dog is the love of my life. And I'll say this to my girlfriend. The joke is, is it'll be me, my girlfriend, and my dog, like, in a room, and I'll look at my dog and say, oh, my perfect baby, my perfect love of my life. And then I'll look at my girlfriend and be like, and you. And then I'll look back on the dog, oh, my perfect, most beautiful baby, and I'm like, dirty human <laughs> Which is not funny to you. I, I already know the presentation was shit on that, but it's got a few laughs. There's a, something I've realized with comedy. And if I'm telling jokes, particularly to my family or my girlfriend, and they're, and they're bombing, right? Like I'll, I'll think of a, a bit and I'll, I'll present it and uh, it'll bomb. But what I noticed is, one, sometimes sticking with a punchline way beyond you think you should stop because you'll like you'll say you'll say a joke and you'll get iced my group of friends from high school used to say like when people were trying to tell a joke and they got crickets back they say oh you're getting iced it's basically the equivalent to bombing right but what i noticed is sometimes if you just triple down quadruple down on the joke on the punchline maybe throw in different like uh, special, like vocal effects and conf and like a little pinch of confidence. One, you might get a joke. I might get a laugh or a, or a snick, like a, a little, 
but I'd say go for, I'd say go down, quadruple down on the punchline, even if you don't get any laughs. Return to that joke maybe the next day, maybe in a week. And you might, you know, pe- people like to remember and remember and, and they'll laugh remembering how you bombed before, but it'll turn into a genuine laugh. And then here's the real beauty of it. Return to that joke, that punchline in five years and you'll get a genuine laugh. It's like magic, but it requires five to 10 years of commitment to a joke. So, so it goes like this. Day one, ground zero, joke. You say the joke. Um, yeah, bananas are slippery. So I, I like this is not really a joke, but it's what's coming to my, my mind is I uh, come on, baby, light my fire. The song by the doors. I would just say. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby. And you can see how this would be annoying, right? And that it's not funny at all right now. Because, well, one, there's no context. Like, I would do it when it would be f- some sort of context. We were lighting a fire outside or, or uh, lighting a candle or I asked for a lighter or something like that. There would be context. But you'd see how it's not funny right now. So you wouldn't laugh. And I would keep going. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. And you, again, wouldn't laugh. I might get a snicker, like a <laughs> maybe a nervous laugh, right? That's day one. You wait. Day five comes around five days from ground zero, day one. And the context approach, we're talking about fire. Something happens with heat or whatever. And come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. And again, you wouldn't get a laugh. You would, But you. this would be the time where you really drive it in. You really bring it home. And you kind of double and triple down and you get maybe a couple Snickers. And maybe you take it far enough where they just laugh because there's nothing else to do. You're so ridiculous and they can't escape. Like you're in a car and you won't stop. And, and maybe it'll turn around, especially if they're not mad at you. It becomes a little funny. That's another important day. That's, that's kind of the second phase. So that's the second phase. Now you wait a year. And the situation presents itself where you're outside, you know, maybe you wait the whole winter or you wait the whole summer. And then the season comes around where it's now it's lighting fire season and you start and you start, you know, doing the fire thing. And then you just maybe softly sing it. Or or, I don't know, the context is going to be different, but you bring it back. It's called a comeback and comebacks are heroes. A hero comes back. The story of the hero is goes away and a hero returns. Think Jesus, think Hercules, think any. So the comeback brings a certain joy. And if you drove the point, if you got past the awkwardness, the icing, the bombing and drove the phrase home well enough, 
the comeback, it's almost the more awkward the initial phases uh, and more the more you bomb, when you do the callback, it's that much more of a payoff. And there's and that's a thing. That's a genuine thing. And I don't know what it's called, but it's just an observation I've had. And it's real as heck. And uh, another one I used to do, again, is uh, this won't have any chance of being funny, but there's a song, famous song, Why Do Birds Suddenly Appear Every Time? But I, would, I wouldn't do it service like that. I would go, Why Do Birds? Suddenly appear all the times at your knee, you know, just really off key. There's almost an art to being off key. If you can be so opposite of musical and with intention, that's an art form of itself. And I'm, I'm still practicing. I, I don't think that was my best performance, but I would do that daily for a week. You know, every time my girlfriend came in the room, why do Birds. Why do birds? Whatever, whatever it was, it was more, it was more authentico in the moment, and it's because it's how I felt. And you know, it was annoying. It was annoying to her for about a week straight. I might not have even gotten a snicker or or like a, a smirk, but guess what? I brought it back three years ago. Or, or here's one. They'll bring it back. And now it'll be their joke. Now you're in their head. It is funny how sometimes the things, like there's catchphrases in a group and it's like, oh, that sounds so stupid. And you start saying it as a joke, like mocking the original saying of it. And now it's your phrase. Now all of a sudden you can't delineate whether or not you're saying it as a joke or whether it's your phrase. And uh, jokes can be like this. This is the long road to comedy. This is long, long form comedy. You're not going to build a special off of this. You're not going to build a nice piece of entertainment in this. Although, if you watch any any special from any com- like comedian that's worth a damn, they they'll incorporate callbacks into their hour sets. So they'll make a joke in hour in the first 15 minutes of their hour, and they'll either call it back once or twice in the second or third trimester of their special. And it's and when it's done right, it's like perfect. It's brilliant. Callbacks are so good. And this is just a long, long form callback. And it also requires a certain amount of commitment. And the message, I guess, is stick with it. And don't give your dog away if you feel like you've you're you're all of a sudden against domestication of animals. Because you made a commitment and you should see it through. And there is something about, you know, there's something special about commitment. Not, you know, I have plenty of thoughts on marriage and, you know, why does the government have to get involved in love and why should it be tax incentivized? And the ceremony is kind of lame anyway. It's not like if I wanted to do my own ceremony, I would do my own ceremony. That's what I would want. Like where I'd pull from different, anyways. But there's something about commitment. There's something about going into like a business relationship or a friendship that um, there's a certain feel when someone's just in it for the short term that it's, uh, if you know, it feels more transactional. 
you can feel more used and sometimes you want to be used, right? Sometimes you want to be able to use others and one night stands are a thing. And sometimes the, the stars align where you both don't want anything truly except for this night and you have a great time. And that's not exactly what I'm talking about, but like in business, for example, maybe we'll keep it business orientated. Like there's a feeling of commitment. I'm in this for the long run. Like I want to be here. And I know there's going to be bumps in the road, but it's it's going to be our ability to overcome those those challenges. It's not the conflict won't crush us. So because of that, that allows for there to be an authenticity in the relationship. Because you can't really thrive if someone's always afraid and walking on eggshells, especially in any in a partnership. And um I think that walking on eggshells kind of feeling gets dissipated when you commit. When you know that this is where you want to be and you're willing to overcome the conflict and, and, and the conflict resolution. And this is kind of why there's a lot of people and myself included where it's like, I'm only show my real self to my family and my real self for a little while was like, you know, ain't like, um, moody or, uh, you know, uh, uh, short, impatient. And I would only show that impatience to my family. And, and I'd almost show the outside world the exact opposite, where I'd be, I'd let anyone walk all over me because I was afraid they would leave in a way. I was so focused on the short-term satisfaction of them being here um, that I'd be afraid to show them my real self and uh, and then I would bring it home and, and like be extra angry with the people that I knew wouldn't just pick up and leave that were in it for the long run. In a sense. And now I've shifted quite a bit where, you know, I have a lot more patience for my family. I don't show them that. That side because I'm grateful for them mostly. Um, and I'm more willing to give the outside world the treatment or whatever, the, the real me. Um, because those who will, you know, it's almost like I have the complete opposite mindset where if you can see me kind of in this like authentic place, even if I'm unhappy and you're willing to come back for more, then, you know, we have a chance at, at a long run. And I'm more interested in the long run now than these, like anything short term fleeting. Like even when I'm traveling and it's very, fast pace and you're not guaranteed to see anyone again um what was my point there well i mean with social media you can kind of stay in touch with people yeah not to shit on anything short like if you're living in the moment and you don't want to commit i'm sure there's a beauty in that but just just chew on the fact that the opposite is also true like there's a beauty in commitment too. And there's a beauty in, and a growth that's possible, particularly like business, when you know that you will be able to overcome some things together. So consider, you know, where can you give your commitment to? What are you committed to now? Because even someone who won't commit to others or, you know, don't want to feel tied down to any sort of relationship, business or otherwise, like you're committing to yourself, you're committing to a sense of freedom that uh, is some or you're committing to some sort of virtue 
or some sort of protection of yourself. And so there's commitment there. And maybe that commitment to yourself is enough, you know, is satisfactory enough. But I'm I'm digging or I'm enjoying <laughs> not even really because I've been I feel like I'm getting burned most recently. And uh, I've committed to these things and backed it up with money, too. It's like I'm committed to this venture and here's, a, you know, a chunk of money so that we can get this going. And here's time and effort and I'll buy my own flights to get to these places and and to show up time and time again. And even though I've gotten burned and uh, I think it's still worth it. Maybe not. Maybe I need to reflect on maybe just committing to myself and to, you know, when to not give yourself away and when to give yourself away. So no, no definitive, no definitive uh, conclusion arrived to there. Still trying to balance out trust and, and, uh, how to remain trusting of people despite um, their, you know, others' inability to maintain the integrity of your trust. How to uh, pick yourself up after, how to pick up the pieces of a broken heart and put them back together. how to keep, how to maintain a sense of hope. And what's the worth of hope, right? Because I've heard hope is as hollow as fear, right? Because you can wish and wish and wish, but wishing, you know, is not grounded. And wishing might not do well enough for this reality, maybe for the one, the next one. But for this one, you can't build a life off wishing. There has to be some sort of grounded practice or practical element to it some sort of dirt to the clouds. But there is a place for hope and there is a place for optimism. And uh, that balance, I think, is between you and you. And for me, what I've been saying lately is on the, on the macro, most macro scale, I'm optimistic. So I... I um, you know, after death, I have a certain optimism that it'll at least all be okay, you know, or that love is still shaping this world. And even the chaos that we see at one level is order at a higher level that we just can't see. I tend to think like this and and I tend to bring some pessimism to the more microscopic elements of my life, the more ego, um, like not having expectations for people not and one because i know that that's like the right thing to do but also because i've been burned and and counting on people to have these to uphold these expectations that are in my head is not possible you know like i believe in selfishness at the individual level and when interacting with others, I, I make plenty of room for their selfishness to live. And that tempers my expectations of them quite a bit. So that's my kind of practice of balance right now, but I can even see how there's holes in it and how I need to be reorganized and, and constantly evolving in that, 
in that balance too of optimism and, and pessimism. I haven't necessarily found or made a reason to be optimistic in like business yet or uh, the creation of wealth and, and money. I've done well in terms of jobs, but um, I haven't been the best employee. And, uh, you know, I've been fired quite a bit. I talked to some people who have never been fired. I'm like, I've been fired seven times, six times, seven times. And, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily want to end on that note. I, I want to end on, on, uh, the, the, the hope or the potentiality of balance between optimism and pessimism, between trusting and putting up boundaries between respect of others and respect of self. Well, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, happy that I'm healthy. I'm happy that I'm here and I get to share. And I'm really happy you are too. I'm available and, uh, you know, leave a comment and reach out. And yeah, thank you so much. This has been The Good Wind.